Hello, and welcome to episode 45 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with nine years' experience in Brazil and China. This week, I bring you a very Amazon episode. First, I'll start by saying I had a big story published this week that was the result of 10 months of work. You may remember that in 2019, fires in the Amazon rainforest captured international headlines, and everyone kind of freaked out about it. You'll be forgiven if you've forgotten, though, because that went straight into the Australian bushfires, and then the pandemic started. Never a dull moment. Anyway, Bolsonaro deployed the military to try to stop people from logging and setting fires to the rainforest. But nearly 20 months later, Brazil still has high deforestation in the Amazon. I spent months talking to sources to figure out all the ways the deployment had gone wrong. The result was a great piece of long-form narrative journalism that I only have the opportunity to do every couple of years at Reuters. The piece really takes you inside the military deployment and illustrates the problems with several anecdotes from out in the jungle. And our multimedia team really did a great job pulling together a beautiful assembly of photos, videos, and graphics to go with the story. Please do check it out. I'll post a link to it in my show notes. Now for the guest. This week, I spoke to Fabiano Maisonavi, the Amazon region correspondent for Brazilian newspaper Folha de São Paulo. Folha is Brazil's largest newspaper. Think of it as the New York Times of Brazil, with its headquarters in the country's largest city, São Paulo. Folha is also the only newspaper with a full-time correspondent based in the Amazon. Fabiano, as you'll hear, is based in the city of Manaus, a city largely cut off from the rest of Brazil. As a journalist covering the environment in Brazil, I write extensively about the Amazon. If you want to know who I'm reading, it's Fabiano. His coverage is hands down the best if you want to be tuned into what's going on all over the region. But it turns out that before the Amazon, Fabiano already had an extremely exciting career. He started out working for Folia in Brazilian farm country, where he later left because of death threats, and then covered Latin America from different places around the region. He even spent a few years as Folia's China correspondent in Beijing. As you'll hear Fabiano say, he's the rare journalist who, instead of ending up in a major metropolis, the New York City or the Sao Paulo, his career has gone in the opposite direction, and he's now out covering rural areas. His work is truly unique among all the journalists I know. We'll talk about some stories he's done on indigenous issues and the interesting challenges of covering a region that's so huge and hard to get around. He's a journalist whose work I've followed for a long time, so I'm very excited I was finally able to speak with him. So now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Fabiano Maisonavi, the Amazon correspondent for Folha de Sao Paulo, based in Manaus, Brazil. To start, if you could just set the scene a little bit and tell us where you are, both geographically and the physical space around you right now, what time it is, and what sort of week you've had at work. I'm in Manaus right now. It's Friday, February 12th, 9.15 in the morning. I'm in my home office. I live by the Negro River, and my desk is just with a gorgeous view from the from the Black River, Rio Negro, going up the way to Colombia. And how, what have you been up to for the past week for work? I mean, obviously, you don't have to tell me if it's a big scoop, but uh, in general terms. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's not a big scoop. Even, even though Manaus has a health collapse right now with the second wave of COVID, I'm not working on that this week. I've just come back from 
a river in the Hondonia state, which is in the border with Bolivia, where there are several maroon societies, which were established in the 18th century. And these maroon societies... Sorry, what kind of societies? Maroon societies, like Quilombos. Oh, okay. Yeah, you say maroon societies in English, right? No, maroon communities, M-A-R-O-O-N. I'm I'm not familiar. It could be a thing, but I've not heard of that before. I'm pretty sure it's it's Maru Society. So in Portuguese, it's Quilombo. So these are communities formed by runaway slaves a long time ago in in the case of the Guaporé River that happened in the mid-18th century. So they've been there for over 200 years. And most of these communities, they don't have uh, the land title. Even though the Constitution gives them the right to have the land title, the federal government has been very, very slow about this. And then Bolsonaro, when he was running for president, he compared these communities to cattle. And he said that they do nothing, that they are lazy, and that he would not grant land titles for them under his term. That was one of his promises. That was probably his most racist statement. And then we went there to see how these communities are living under his government after two years of Bolsonaro's government. Gotcha. And so you, you just got back from that? Yeah, I just wrote this piece, and then I wrote another story about mining contamination in Horaima State, which is a state in the border with Venezuela. Even though mining is not allowed inside indigenous territories in Brazil, Bolsonaro, always Bolsonaro, he promised to legalize this. And so even though it's not a law yet, but the mayor promised hundreds of gold miners to start working illegally in this area. It's called Raposa Serra do Sol. So I got pictures from a beautiful waterfall that I spent a carnival two years ago, so I know the place very well. And this waterfall used to have a beautiful esmeralda greenish water, and now it's completely filled by mud that's coming from the illegal mining. So I wrote a story about that too. And yeah, that was pretty much my week, these two stories. So, I mean, just to give uh, people unfamiliar with Brazil some sense, Manaus is smack in the middle of the Amazon. To do these stories, I mean, these are these places are extremely far apart. Exactly. Well, the Amazon in Brazil is halfway right of the territory. That means over 4 million square kilometers. It's larger than most countries in the world. I live in Manaus, which is a 2 million city in the middle of, of the Amazon. The connection here is mostly by boat or by air. There is an unpaved road. Uh, it's 500 kilometers by unpaved road. And during this season, the rainy season, it's very hard to, to get through. So it's a big city, but still a kind of outpost city, very isolated. Right. Okay. And then uh, we'll get back to your current work a little bit later. But first, to figure out how you got to where you are today, we start way back at, if you could tell me where you were born, a little bit about what growing up was like, and if you showed an early interest in journalism. So I was born in Sao Paulo, but my parents are not from there, so I was just born there. And when I was two years old, I moved to Foziguasu, which is the largest city a Brazilian city in, in the border. It makes borders with two countries, Paraguay and Argentina. 
And it's very famous because of the waterfalls, uh, the Iguazu waterfalls, and also because of Itaipu. Itaipu is the largest uh, hydroelectric plant in the world, the second largest after Three Gorges in China, but in production is the largest one. So it's a very different place, it's three countries, amazing waterfalls, a big dam. And I grew up there. My father was an electrical engineer in Taipu, and that was the largest project during the military dictatorship. So we had a very secluded life. We live in a closed gate community, and we, we knew very little about the world. It was just middle-class kids with their parents working for a <laughs> military government. So... As a kid, I, I didn't know much about the world. We were very, very protected, and I was growing up in a dictatorship, so there was not a lot of news or discussions going on there. And I, I, I decided to be a journalist. My father used to subscribe a, a more conservative newspaper in Brazil called Estado de São Paulo. I enjoyed reading it, but I, I thought it was boring, but I was interested in knowing about the news, so... I read it. And then when I was 14, I went to a farm with my uncle and I spent 10 days there with no news whatsoever. So when I came back, I I was eager to see what was happening in the world. So I got to his house and he was subscribing Folha de São Paulo, which is the paper where I work for. And Folha, it's easier to read Folha de São Paulo. The stories are shorter and, and they were more... Uh, straightforward and started Sao Paulo and it was amazing that journalists could be straightforward mm-hmm. and then that that was when I decided to become a journalist and and I work for 20 years now in the same newspaper so it was a, a kid dreams come true <laughs> right so I've been to Itaipu and I can imagine what it used to be like when people kind of lived on the compound and it was kind of this perfect closed environment really like a company town almost. Uh, so that must have been a strange place to grow up in. How old were you when the dictatorship ended? I was nine years old. It was in 1984. But still, Itaipu was an area, like a security area for the government. So it was still a very like conservative place. And we didn't feel the changes right away. It was only after high school that we began to notice what redemocratization meant. So it took a while for us to grasp what was happening in the country. Sure. So it's not like the newspapers changed overnight and suddenly could write or were writing whatever they wanted. It was a more gradual. Yeah. And I was reading Estado de São Paulo, which is a more conservative newspaper. I, I didn't know Folha. So I, I was reading the most conservative newspaper available in the country at that time. So it was not the best place to catch up with the, <laughs> the big things happening. <laughs> And so did you then go to university to study journalism or how do you go about becoming a journalist after this light bulb goes off? Yeah, well, I decided to, to study journalism. So I, I moved from my city to Sao Paulo, which is 1,000 kilometers away. And I spent my first year studying in a private college and I, I didn't enjoy the course very much. So I changed to history. So my my major is history, and I graduated in history from the University of Sao Paulo. I was uncertain that I wanted to be a journalist at that time, so I pursued a master's degree in American history, actually. I I went to the U.S. under a Fulbright scholarship, 
and then I, I came back to Brazil and that was not a job for a struggling historian where I was <laughs> living. And then my only available <laughs> job at the time was journalism. So I, I came back to journalism. So you come out of university, the Fulbright, back to Brazil, and you get a job at Folia de Sao Paulo immediately. And well, what was that first job? I was about to start a PhD in anthropology in the U.S. And then I came to Brazil for the summer. And at the time, my parents had moved from Foz do Iguaçu to a Midwestern city, cattle city called Campo Grande. And then there, there was a state government run by PT, Workers' Party, Lula's Party. That was before Lula's term. So I was very curious about how things were working there. So during my stay there in the summer, I got to know people who were working in the government, social movements, just to understand what was happening there. And then I, I met my ex-wife and uh, we, we fell in love. And I did go back to the U.S., but I quit my PhD and went back to Brazil to get together with her. And in the beginning, my first job there actually was uh, working for the state government, for the PT government. I was in the kind of a cultural section of the government. And it was really, really disappointing. <laughs> after, <laughs> <laughs> after three months, uh, I saw so much corruption, so many wrong things. It just, it just took me three months to figure out that government wasn't going anywhere. That it was just as corrupt as any other government. And then I, I was very miserable at the job. And then I quit and went to work for a local newspaper. And I stayed there for a few months. And then before I went to the U.S., I was a trainee for Folia. So they found out that I was there and they were firing the local correspondent. And they invited me to to be the correspondent in Campo Grande. So I, I accepted. That was uh, July 2001. So I've been in Folia since system. Wow. And Campo Grande, I mean, is farm country. And uh, then it was too. I mean, it was probably, you know, blowing up more than taking off. So, I mean, what what your, were your parents doing? Were they involved in agriculture? Were they involved in government? Or why Campo Grande? Yeah, my mother's from Mato Grosso do Sul, that's the state. And uh, she had a lot of relatives with cattle farms there. And my father, he retired from Itaipu, and he decided to become a cattle farmer. So <laughs> he, got, he got a farm there, and that was the major decision, to raise cattle. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so what happens after that? And do you at some point go to Sao Paulo, or have you always been a correspondent somewhere else for Folio? No, so uh, I was 25, 26 when I st started uh, Folia. And so, as I told you, there was a leftist a PT government, and the year was 2001, 2002. So Lula was running again for president, and at the polls he was at the front. So Folia thought, and I thought it was correct, that the newspaper should look at PT governments more closely to see PT not only as an opposition to Fernando Henrique Cardoso, but as, also as a, as a government. So, And then, as I told you, there was a lot of corruption happening. And the newspaper was willing to publish these stories because it's a story from the main opposition party. So I started to write a lot about corruption. 
And as I knew people from the government, and many of them were angry with what was happening, and others were just willing to uh, destroy their opponents inside the party. So I got a lot of information, and I started to publish them almost every week, <laughs> a corruption or <laughs> wrongdoing story about PT. And then to make it short, I, I got some death threats coming from the government. Oh, wow. And the second death threat was very serious. I was investigating a story about PT and Petrobras. That was 2002, like several, several years before Lava Jato, the main corruption story in, in Latin America. So there was a scheme that were, Petrobras was, was supposed to pay taxes to the state government. But instead of paying these taxes to the government, it was making payments to ghost shell companies that supposedly had debts with the government. And so it took me seven months to write the story. And when I started to talk with this businessman that were involved in corruption, a lawyer that I didn't know, he was working inside the penitentiary, the local penitentiary. So he told me that there was a negotiation inside the penitentiary to kill me. There was a lot of corruption in the penitentiary. So one of the ways to kill somebody was you hire an inmate, the inmate goes out during the night, kills the person, and comes back to the jail. So it was a perfect alibi. Wow. So this lawyer, who I didn't know, but was a serious lawyer, and uh, he said, well, they told me that you're in danger. So I had to leave Campo Grande and go to Sao Paulo with my family. My kid was just one year old. So I was 27. Uh, I was really young and... It was really scary. And then the, when I went to Sao Paulo, this story about uh, Petrobras and PT was published. Uh, nobody paid attention because it was the beginning of Lula's government. There is this period of honeymoon. <laughs> uh. so, so, But it's published. And uh, the, the first story involving corruption between Petrobras and Lula's party, I, I wrote this and published in 2003. And it's still after that, the Attorney General started a, a lawsuit and uh, as it happens very often in Brazil, it's, it's never been judged. It's still <laughs> in the Supreme Court. It's been 17 years that it's there. Uh, three top officials from the government at the time, they are the defendants. So, But uh, we'll never see the end. This is very common in Brazil. Huh. And did, did this uh, scandal have a catchy name or anything? I mean, I, I know there's like, what, Mensalau. There's There were so many corruption scandals. No, actually, there wasn't. It was just this story that I wrote. And as I wrote already in Sao Paulo, the newspaper hired another correspondent in Campo Grande, and he kept writing about this. But it was never picked up by other media. It was a different time. It was a very, like, everybody was charmed by Lula. It was a honeymoon. And the timing was for the people not to pay attention. The state government, as it happens in Brazil very often, they bribed all the media, the local media. So the local media in Mato Grosso do Sul, in Campo Grande, they didn't publish anything about the story, except one newspaper that was a, also, I have to say, a, a corrupt newspaper. So an opposition congressman, he paid this newspaper to run my story <laughs> and, to, and to distribute the story in the streets. So on Saturday, say they... They spread my story in this newspaper over the city. And a, f a few weeks later, the owner of this 
this newspaper was shot dead in the middle of uh, the day in Campo Grande, and this crime was never solved. And his family said that the reason he was killed was because he read that story. Wow, that's crazy. Uh, there was a senator who later became very famous during the Lava Jato scandal, was called Delcidio do Amaral. So he was involved in that too, because before becoming a senator, he was working as a director in Petrobras, and he sued me. He tried to put me in jail for saying that he had a corruption scheme in Petrobras, and several years later, he was the one who went to jail because of, <laughs> because of that. So, yeah, he, he tried to put me in jail. That was the lawsuit, too. Wow. In Brazil, people get sued a lot, but, I mean, does that ruin your life like it does in the United States? Like, it just costs a ton and takes forever. No, it just, I mean, it was just a pain in the ass. You have to go to court several times. There's the lawyer, but Folha always backed me up, so I didn't pay anything. Folha covered all the expenses. It was oh, that's just, just a way to intimidate, and I was just beginning journalism, and I had a story that I thought it was a big story, and nobody paid attention. I was threatened. I had to leave a city. I had a young son. So it was a very big trauma for me. I, from that point, I, I didn't want to work covering politics and corruption anymore because it was just, it was just awful. It was a very traumatic event for me. It just felt, I imagine, like it might not have been worth it because if you if something had happened if these people had gone to jail it might have seemed worth it but like it just nobody paid attention so no just the lawyers <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so then you go back to sao paulo and what are you writing about there i went back to sao paulo in march 2003 and so it was just at the beginning of the iraq invasion and then the newspaper needed more journalists in the international section. So I began the international section the very same day that Bush invaded Iraq. So, of course, I was working from the newsroom. And so after a while, there was a reporter who was covering Latin America, and he quit. And then I asked to write about Latin America, and they put me in charge of covering Latin America. And maybe that was the best period of my life as a journalist, because I covered this red wave all over the countries. I saw the election of Evo Morales, Rafael Correa. I saw Chavez at his peak. And all these major things happening in the continent, and I, I was able to witness them and write about them. Yeah, wow. And you were based in Sao Paulo, and you would just fly to these countries to cover it? Yeah, in the beginning, that was what I did, but in... 2007, I was the first Brazilian correspondent in Venezuela, in Caracas. So Chavez was just re-elected, and it was when he tried to change everything, the constitution, he began this big nationalization, he shut down an opposition television, and so that was the first protests in the streets against him. So uh, that was my first year in Venezuela. It was very, very intense. Wow, yeah, you seem to go from intense thing to intense thing. <laughs> how, how much time did you spend in Venezuela? So I spent three years there until 2010, 
And from Venezuela, I covered many stories all over the region. Uh, uh, for instance, I covered uh, the Honduras coup in 2009 when the, the military seized the president and his pajamas and flew him out of the country. I was there, so it's something that a journalist wants to cover a coup. So I was supposed to go there to cover a local election for four days, and I ended up staying four months in, in Honduras. And it was very, really... Uh, intense moment. Um, Zelaya, this president, afterwards, after a few months, he came back to Honduras and he got inside the Brazilian embassy to push a negotiation there. So I was able to enter the embassy, even though I was surrounded by the military, and, and I spent 43 days living inside the embassy with this guy. Huh. Yeah, so... <laughs> and they were trying to negotiate a, a way to solve this political crisis there from the Brazilian embassy. So even though Honduras is not a country important to Brazil, the fact that he was inside the Brazilian embassy and the Lula, Lula's diplomacy was very ambitious. He wanted to be a big player in the world. So it was a big story. And I was able to cover it from very close, (laughs) let's say that. Yeah, wow. I mean, did you get to have uh, interview the guy? Did you have direct contact? Well, every day. <laughs> we're, we're on the, the same roof. We share the same bathroom, so... <laughs> wow, wow. <laughs> yeah. What happened in the end? Did uh, they work out some deal to get him out of the country? Yeah, they worked out a deal for the Congress to decide whether he would come back to office or not. So, in the end, the, the Congress voted against him, and he ended up staying... I think four months inside the embassy. And then he was allowed to go abroad again. So he moved to the Dominican Republic. And now he's back to Honduras, but uh, he never became a president again. Wow. Crazy. Yeah, you've covered a lot of different stuff. Have you always spoken Spanish because you grew up near the border? Or did you learn as you went? I was used to listening to Spanish. Uh, Itaipu is a binational company or, or enterprise. It's between Brazil and Paraguay. So we had a lot of contact with Paraguay. But actually, Portuguese was dominant there. Many Paraguayans spoke Portuguese. And so I really, really learned Spanish when I moved to the U.S. All my friends were Latinos. I had a, a Latino girlfriend from Puerto Rico. And so... <laughs> <laughs> My Spanish improved a lot in the U.S. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I guess just take us on from there. So after Honduras, do you continue to cover Latin America for a while or, or what happens next? After Honduras, I just after that in early 2010, the newspaper invited me to go to China. So I moved to China by April 2010 and was a correspondent there for almost three years. Was that, I mean, what was your reaction when they said they wanted to send, could send you to China? I mean, was it something you really wanted to do? Were you nervous? Were you, what did you think about it? It blew my mind. I mean, this was, I never considered moving to China. Of course, I read a lot about China, but as everybody else reads, because it's so many things happening there in the past decades, but it was not a close interest. But I had no doubts when they invited me. It was a big challenge, and I was kind of tired of Venezuela because it's a story that, even today, it doesn't change much. It deteriorates. There is this massive migration now, but the political doings, all these things, it's just, it doesn't change much. And China is 
was a fascinating story to cover. 20% of the population lived there. Everything changed in front of your eyes. So it was, I, I didn't doubt to go there. And you lived in Beijing, I assume? Yes, I spent my time in Beijing. Just because I'm curious, because I was in Beijing, well, I was in China starting first in 2007, 2008, and then I moved back in 2011, mostly to Shanghai and southern China, and then only up to Beijing in 2013. But, you know, there's a lot of different ways to cover China. Were, were you going to a lot of foreign ministry briefings and things like that? Or were you going out and doing more features outside of Beijing? Or how did you cover it? Well, there was a very important economic angle. By that time, China had just become Brazil's largest trade partner, surpassing the U.S. So there are many things happening in the economic field. Besides the trade, China was starting to buy a lot of companies in Brazil, oil companies, electric companies, and they were trying to buy land. So there was a lot about what China was trying to do in Brazil. It was really I mean, the biggest, biggest moment between the two countries in terms of trade and foreign investment. It was just beginning, this big boom that we see today. Not as much as foreign investment, but as trade right now. But there was a lot of investment going on at the time. And then I did write about features. Uh, I went to the South disguised as a shoes buyer to, to buy knockout shoes from Brazilian companies, for instance, and so that was one of the weird stories. We always try to relate, of course, China to Brazil. So I went to this uh, knockout factories in that produced Havaiana. <laughs> Wait, do you mean like knockoff, like fake, like they're producing fake? I'm sorry, yes, yes. This knockoff factories producing Havaiana sandals, and I pretended that I want to buy them, and, and they describe me very carefully how they do that and what are the challenges to do just the same and was <laughs> that's a great story yeah and other features i mean I, I was able to go to tibet to write about tourism there i wrote stories about adoption but mostly economics of course there, there were some crises that i covered there was the crisis with japan with uh, senkaku diaoyu island and there was this the blind lawyer that was able to go to, to the U.S., uh, Chen Guangcheng, there was a lot of hard news, too. I covered an earthquake in Yushu, which is uh, in the Tibetan plateau. As I was the only Asian correspondent in, from Folia, I covered the tsunami in Japan. I went to South Korea a few times. So, yeah, it was hectic and busy as any <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. But no, I mean, having only one person, like it does, it's quite the challenge to cover everything and decide what to cover. But at least, yeah, having Brazil, like you can seek out certain Brazil specific angles to focus on. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, just having now parachuted into any number of countries like I mean, what is that like, like be, having to go to Japan and presumably you know no Japanese, you've been living in China, you know some stuff about China, but like how do you approach these types of assignments? It's much easier in Latin America, of course, because we, we know more, a lot more about these countries than China and, and Japan. Actually, Japan, we know a lot in Brazil because of the, the Japanese immigration. China was not as much... Uh, by the time, but the the recipe is 
it's just like any other journalist. The first thing is to read as much as you can about the place. The second thing that comes from my history background is that you have to remember that the story doesn't start when you get out of the plane. It's been there forever and it right. just it's just arriving in the middle of it. And so you have to be very humble and very careful to stay in the country for a week and think that you can have a big scoop there. I mean, that's not the purpose of a correspondent that stays so little time in a place. So we're a translator. We have to understand the context as much as possible and translate it to our reader that is very, very far away. So I like to get in touch with my colleagues, local colleagues, and learn from them. And they're usually very, very open to sources, to explain things. When journalists don't compete, they are the best people ever. <laughs> right, so, right. Uh, so I, I, I made a lot of friends, colleagues in, in all these countries. And meeting these colleagues was the best part and most helpful part, too. Cool. Yeah. Sounds like you had a very good busy time there, the busy three years. Um, so, yeah, uh, you leave after three years. Uh, why and what happens next? I was there with my son and... I divorced uh, a few years earlier, and then that was he went to China for two seasons, but it was not enough. And then I, I decided that my correspondent days were over, and I asked the newspaper to go back to Brazil and to be based there. So it was mostly a familiar thing. I wanted to be closer to my son. And then I went back to Sao Paulo, and I was... Uh, reported at large for the newspaper and I started to cover the stories mostly inside the country and that, that was when I did my first trips to the Amazon and I didn't know the Amazon and uh, it was fascinating for me to, to see what was happening and the indigenous issues, all the size, all the stories and all these things that you don't know if you're not there, if you're not here actually and then I tried to write more and more about the region. And then in 2015, I was granted a Neiman Fellowship in Harvard. So I, I moved to Boston, to Cambridge for one year. And after that time, I, I decided to become a correspondent in Manaus. I asked the newspaper to move to Manaus. It was the first time I, I was actually deciding where to cover. And then I decided to cover the Amazon. And then in, in 2016, I moved to Manaus. Actually, the newspaper didn't have a bureau here anymore. No newspaper. We, we have four national newspapers. At the time, none of them had a correspondent in the Amazon. So I was the only one, and I still am the only one here in the region. And it's, it's really amazing that I don't have colleagues here. So, I mean, for the Prince Press. And so here I am for four years now. So when I first arrived in Brazil in 2017, you know, I cover environment, among other things, and you were the person I read. And I, I think I probably still have like a Google alert set up for your name, because it's like, well, this is easy. There's only one guy there. Um, so I can follow him. And, you know, you were always ahead, because you were there, like, you know, there, there's no way others can compete, because they're not on the ground seeing it. So you've been doing great reporting out there. And I mean, seeing the great reporting you do makes me always wonder, like, what if I were to live out there? But I imagine like the other newspapers and like other people, it's like, 
I mean, there are a lot of impracticalities to living in Manaus. And do you, you know, do I want to put my wife through yeah. that? And do I want to <laughs> do this? So I imagine <laughs> there's a personal trade-off. And how, how do you find that trade-off? Should more people be doing it? Yeah, I mean, there, I mean, there are two things. Uh, one of them is, that, of course, uh, the, the newspaper crisis. I mean, all over the world, most newspapers have been cutting, cutting, cutting their staff, and in Brazil, it's not, no difference. At some points, uh, Folha had uh, four correspondents in the Amazon in four different cities. And, wow. And, and also Global and, and Estado, they also had correspondents here. But when the cuts started, the Amazon was one of the first places where they closed the office. So it was not like this. In the 70s, Eliane Brum remembers uh, remember that the other day. In the 70s, Estado de São Paulo had a bureau just to cover Tucuruí dam construction. I mean, there were several journalists just to, wow. to write about one dam, uh, the construction of the <laughs> one dam. It was a big one, but still. And so it was, that, that's happening all over the world, and Brazil is no exception. And for me to work here, I have to find funds. Besides being a reporter, I also have to write projects and get funding for the coverage because otherwise it's just too expensive to travel around the region. It usually takes several days. You have to hire a, a private airplanes or travel by boat, so very expensive uh, fuel. So I'm here, but uh, it's not only Folha that pays me. I, I have some sponsors too. Oh, huh, like grants? Exactly. Yes, grants. Yeah, mostly grants, yes. Right now we we're writing two-year projects about, uh, it's called Amazon under Bolsonaro, and the money is coming from a deal we've made with an English site called Climate Home News, so so the money comes from them, and that's how we travel. Gotcha. Yeah, that's a great series. I know, I remember an early one you did where with you work a lot with Lalo Alameda, I know, mm -hmm. and uh, you guys got out to some mine in the middle of nowhere. Um, it was maybe it was Cachoeira do São Gabriel. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. I was like, "Good God, how did these guys get there? At what? <laughs> how long did this take?" But it's amazing work. The good news about that partnership is it gets translated all into English by Climate Home News. Yeah, it, it's published in English as well. Yeah, it's a small publication. It doesn't get a lot of attention, but if there are one or two people interested in the story, it's in English too. Cool. I'll send people that way because I, I think it's great work. And yeah, Lalo takes great photos. So it's really unlike work anybody else is doing, I feel like. Since we've kind of caught up to present, maybe we could talk about a story. I usually like to start with the one about a story that got away, a story that you wanted to do but weren't able to do for whatever reason. Either you couldn't prove it, you couldn't, I don't know, get the funding, you couldn't get uh, the source or the editor wouldn't say yes or whatever reason but does anything come to mind yeah well i mean uh mato grosso do sul the beginning of my career is, <laughs> is my how do you say that about my baptism of fire is that yeah yeah, yeah. So, baptism of fire yeah so it was like people usually ask me what's the worst place you've ever been what's the most dangerous and i, and I always say it's mato grosso do sul by far <laughs> uh, when I was there, I wasn't yet in Folha, so there was a landless leader. It was not from the landless movement, which is uh, nationwide and very well known and linked to PT and the leftists. Right, it's a movement to occupy land, to give people without land. Yes, 
it's like a peasant's movement. So it was a very local peasant movement. And there was this guy, José Rafael Neto. And he, he had, his group was living about 100 kilometers from the city. And he was pushing the government to get food and other things. And, and he went to Campo Grande and he had an argument with the government, the state government. And it got ugly. I mean, they used ugly words in this, in this meeting. So four days later or five days later, I mean, less than one week later, the government sent the secret police to catch him. So he was driving in the, the highway, and then there was this police car that was no marks, unmarked, and closed the, the road. And he was scared, so he turned back and went inside the office building, and he got shot there twice, and he died. Wow. Yeah, and then in the beginning, there was no reason why they did that. And then they came up with, uh, uh, with a story that he was a leader of a, a hitman in Sao Paulo or some makeup <laughs> story. And then a, a local newspaper found out that the, the people who killed him were from the secret service in the police. And one of these persons was a police officer who was working inside the government. I mean, he was uh, kind of aide to the governor, and he was there too. And when he, his name came out, he fled the state. My, my wife used to work for the government. He used to sit next to her. Huh. And then he disappeared. And I was shocked. I mean, I was watching PT, the leftist government, Lula's government, killing a landless peasant's leader with the secret police. And it's a very conservative state, so... Nobody cared, actually. I mean, the press, of course, they, they published the story for a while, but then they forgot about the story. The National Landless Movement, they didn't denounce the story because they were close to PT, to the left. So for them, it's, it was not a the thing to do because it was not part of their group. And there was no human rights organizations there. And I was really amazed by what just happened. And I collected every, every story, uh, everything about the story, I interviewed the people, but my ex-wife, she asked me, and I, since then, uh, I mean, every other year, I asked her if I can publish the story, and she's just too scared that something might happen to her, even though she doesn't live there anymore, so she doesn't allow me to write the story, <laughs> and I, I have a big file about everything that happened here, it's, it was in 2001, so it's, it's been 19 years. Maybe one day I will be able to write it, but uh, so far I can't. Wow. Yeah, that's a crazy story to sit on. But, yeah, I mean, it's so shocking if you write it even now. I mean, this isn't the dictatorship, like you said. It's, you know, Lula, PT government. Yeah. Pretty shocking. Let's see. Then I guess to talk about a story you're proud of, if you could pick a story you're proud of and just kind of walk us through First of all, what it was and how you did it start to finish, any reaction, that sort of thing. It can be from whenever in your career, if you uh, had a chance to think about it. Yeah, to be proud is something that I don't usually... (laughs) uh, (laughs) I I don't see myself as doing great things. I mean, I just try to put the story for the public. I don't know. I mean, maybe... Well, there's one story that I 
did here. It also involves mining and also in São Gabriel da Cachoeira. I went to a very remote area where the Baniwa Indians, uh, they live. And I, I was there. It takes forever to get there. If you're in Sao Paulo, for instance, so you fly four hours and you get here in Manaus. And then from Manaus, mm-hmm. you have to fly to São Gabriel da Cachoeira, which is a very remote city. It's an indigenous city, the, the biggest indigenous population in Brazil. So it's a two-hour flight from Manaus to São Gabriel. And then... And what I imagine is an absolutely tiny plane. Yeah, and it's not that tiny, but the, oh, okay. the, there's no road. There's, you, you just can't get there by boat or by plane. But I know it's, a, it's, it's a large enough. It, it's only three times a week, but... I mean, maybe for 40 people. But anyway, I, then from there, you have to travel two days by boat to get to this area. It's very, 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 very far away. And then I went there to cover another story. It was about a project that they produce pepper and sell all over the world. I mean, not all over the world, but many parts of the world. But then they, they saw that I was a journalist and, and they started to talk to me about this businessman from Sao Paulo who was going there and he was bribing some leaders and giving them gifts. In exchange, he wanted to explore illegally mining. It's a rare mineral called tantalite. Tantalite. It's a mineral used in, in electronics and it has a very good price. So Interesting. So there was this guy from Sao Paulo going from village to village and trying to convince these Baniwa leaders to get this going. And these guys, they of course, they didn't like it. And they recorded everything that he said in all the villages. And then right there in the middle of the Amazon, they took me to a hut that was a makeshift office for them with solar energy. And they gave me pages and pages of the transcripts of what this guy said in all this area. <laughs> and he, they also gave me the recording. So, of course, I, I checked it and it was just perfect. So these guys who speak Portuguese as a second language, they gave me all this material. And when I went back to Manaus, I started to dig the story and I discovered that this guy had a, a partner. And at the time, this partner was a close aide to Michel Temer, the president at the time. So, uh-huh. so it was, there was all these links and, uh, and the information that I gathered like, was a joint investigation. We were able to, to write up. For me, it was a very powerful story about how things were, were happening after, after Dilma left office and all, all this conservative movement took over the government and, and all this pressure on the indigenous territories that's still happening. So uh, the story went out. I didn't make a big splash, but I think I was faithful to what uh, they told me and I was able to put the story out that was happening in a very, very remote area that nobody was knew was going on. Right, yeah. I mean, it's the type of thing that, you know, a, a guy can go out there and do all these things and a journalist might never show up. And so nobody might mm, ever yeah. find out. Exactly. But... Were there any investigations? Did it go anywhere afterwards? I mean, I know, like you said, oftentimes stuff in Brazil. It did. Oh, it did. It did. Uh, yeah, after that, the uh, Attorney General, the uh, MPF, you know, the, the Federal Attorney General, they made a lawsuit against these people and they recommended them not to enter the indigenous territory anymore. 
and, and from them on, they didn't come back, and the, the, this whole scheme stopped it. So, yeah, unfortunately, the, yeah, unfortunately, the, the guy who helped me most, his name was Isaias. Uh, beyond the record, he had documents, and he was very firm against that, and he knew exactly what this guy was trying to do. And he passed away two weeks ago; with, uh, he died from COVID. But uh, he was only in the early fifties. Anyway, but uh, he it was amazing to work with them, and it was really, it was really, really amazing what how well organized and how how much information they had gathered. And uh, most of the investigation was from them, and I I was very happy to put this out. Yeah, that's great. Sorry to hear um, about him dying from COVID. Um, yeah. What what year was this that uh, came out? Oh, the, the time was horrible. Uh, it was in <laughs> 2018, in the middle of the World Cup, and so and Brazil had not lost yet, so nobody was paying attention to anything. <laughs> it was in June, the World Cup and the Russia World Cup, so. Nobody was paying attention to anything except <laughs> soccer. So uh, the time was bad, but the story is out there. Still, that's great. Yeah, and I'll I'll get a link to you later So because I always post links to stories we talk about. I guess before moving on to the lightning round, I guess I just have some specific questions for you. One thing I was going to ask you, because I get asked this a lot, is, is it dangerous out in the Amazon and I say, you know, for me, as somebody who flies in from Brasilia, flies out, I would say no. You're not there long enough. You don't get embroiled in local feuds and things like that. And that's really how people get killed. Like it's people working for local publications, missionaries, you know, indigenous, that sort of thing. People who can't leave if things get bad. Sure, things could go wrong if you stumbled on the wrong person doing the wrong illegal thing in the middle of nowhere. But, you know, that's kind of random. It's not, for me, it's not a huge danger. I mean, you live in Manaus. Do you think working on this sort of environmental stuff is dangerous out there for you? Yeah, well, I for these uh, environmental crime stories, uh, it's the same as living in Brasilia. So, I mean, Manaus is very far from this area, so I just fly there and come back. So it's the same kind of security that I that you have. Manaus is one of the most dangerous cities in the world. It's the most violent ones, but this violence, as always, involves mostly poor people, not so much middle class. I did write hard stories about police violence in the, in Manaus and I never got any death threats or I never felt threatened. But one thing that we have to be worried though is about the security of the people who talk to us. So sometimes you get there, you you interview a leader who is receiving death threats and then you leave and he's still there. So, I mean, the calculation has to involve the security of the people you interview more than our security. We're more protected. Brazil is the, the country that always on the top three in uh, environmental and uh, landless uh, leaders' killings. And in journalism, there has been journalists killed in the Amazon in Brazil, but it's mostly local newspapers, local media, bloggers, people who are uh, in the middle of local political disputes. I mean... So far, no journalist from a major media organization has been killed in the Amazon. 
I don't want to be the first one, <laughs> but uh, so far there right. the, the, the hasn't been uh, a killing. There have been there have been threats. I haven't received none, but some colleagues did receive uh, threats. But nobody was killed or nobody was shot here, and that doesn't mean that when you go to an area, you you have to plan very well. You have to make contact before uh, try to analyze how bad the situation is. But so far, so good. That's good. That's good. And then I wanted to ask what the longest amount of time you spent getting somewhere and what was involved there. Like, have you ever had to spend time like just walking through the jungle or anything to get somewhere? Uh, I'm just curious what your most involved journey was. <laughs> well, we had spent some some days in the jungle, not like an old-time expedition. That's the dream of everybody who lives in the Amazon to <laughs> do something like, I don't know, uh, shoots, like the, this famous uh, ethnobotanist from Harvard. But no, I, I'm mostly one week. Uh, one story with this that I really like doing, again, with the indigenous collaboration. I was part of an expedition of Muduruku warriors that uh, were trying to expel a large gold mining operation inside their territory. And they allowed me to go with them. I was the only white person there. And uh, we traveled for five or six days back and forth. And I was able to watch them trying to expel these miners. And it was so much destruction that we saw on the way they were really sad and at the same time it was really hard for them because there were mudurukus on the other side supporting the miners so they couldn't get more violent or more more assertive because that could create a violence between them so that was probably i mean the most intense uh, travel that i did uh, in, in the amazon where was that exactly? Uh, uh, that was in southwestern Pará. The tribe is called Munduruku. It's the place with the largest illegal gold mining in Brazil. So there are thousands of miners inside their territory, and they're destroying their rivers, and they're polluting their water. And uh, the government uh, hasn't done much, actually very little, to, to stop this. So they're losing their territory to the, to the mining how do you do a trip like that? I mean, I imagine that you, you're you going with them. They don't know how long it's going to take. They don't know where they're going to stay. They don't know anything. So you just kind of pack your backpack and follow them around? Yeah, that's that's basically it. Of course, I knew them before, so that helps. And that's justifying being a correspondent because you, you're always talking to them. They already know your work. And an important thing, they, they kind of see that you're trying to understand what's happening. And for them, it's very important that you're trying to understand what they're trying to say, what they're trying to show. They're very open. And even though it involves other Munduruku, they're very open criticizing their own kin. And to make us understand that most of them don't, don't want this, but that some of them are involved and that it's really hard for them to grapple with. So that kind of contact over the years really helps the work so after me other journalists went to see to do the story but i was the first one that they allowed to, to to join them and probably the others went because they saw that an honest journalism piece can help uh, expose what's happening there no that's great that you were able to go along with them 
And last, uh, just out of curiosity, apart from work, I am curious what it is like living in Manaus, if you feel socially isolated there, or if it's just a perception. I mean, there are two million people there. I've been there before. I'm just curious what it's like living there. Well, Manaus is a very dangerous city, very unequal city, and the weather is very unpleasant. It's too hot even for Amazon standards. And the city without sidewalks, so uh, even if it, there were good weather, you, you cannot walk in the city because there's very few sidewalks. But the Amazon attracts very interesting people. So there is a federal university here with very interesting research, people very committed to the region. The same thing with IPA, the, the National Institute for Amazon Research. It's also based here. Uh, there's a lot of researchers from all over the world, actually. M many Americans live here, uh, some of them very famous worldwide, like Philip Fearnside. So there is this environment of people who are worried and who are interested in the Amazon. I have a few colleagues from journalism here, too, uh, and it's a small community, but it's not a present city as itself, but uh, it's interesting enough. And the best thing about Manaus is that is just drive 15, 20 minutes here in the jungle. I mean, uh, I take my bicycle here, I ride for 20 minutes, and then I'm in the woods and I can see monkeys. I mean, beautiful monkeys, uh, beautiful birds. If I drive two hours from Manaus, I have, uh, there's a city called Figueiredo with more than 40 waterfalls, all of them surrounded by pristine jungle, so... If you like the jungle, if you like nature, I mean, even though it's a big city, it's right next to you. Yeah, that sounds great. And yeah, I guess I kind of knew that. I talked to Fernside a fair bit. And I guess the one thing I, I should probably ask, and then we will move on to the lightning round, is just how COVID has affected your work. Because you're not reporting directly on COVID, but we know things are very, very bad out there. Um, so how has that affected you? I reported uh, in the first wave during April and May. So, and then I stayed in the city from April to July, and then I started to travel again uh, in the region. And uh, Manaus has a bad, very bad infrastructure in health. And also, there is this thing that Manaus is the capital of Amazon as a state. And the Amazon as a state is 1.5 million square kilometers. If Amazonas were a country, it would be the third largest country in South America uh, after Brazil and Argentina. Manaus, Amazonas wow. is, is larger than Colombia, is larger than Peru. And only Manaus has intensive care. So if you're sick, let's say in São Gabriel da Cachoeira, it's a 700 kilometers, you have to get a, into a plane and come to Manaus in order to get medical attention, I mean, in, in ICU. So it's everything is concentrated in Manaus from a very large area. And so the health system collapsed twice. It's collapsed again now. It's really hard, especially for people who cannot travel to other cities in the country and stay there or have to work. It's been an awful season, an awful period, probably the worst period in the story, recent story of the city. Yeah, wow. And at the same time, people don't pay too much attention to some social distancing rules and things like that. Uh, Bolsonaro has this very strong influence here in a poll that was published late last year. Manaus is the second 
uh, a capital. I mean, in support in supporting Bolsonaro. First is Boa Vista, and then uh, here. So all these wrong orientations about uh, medicine, social distance, it has a large influence here. People really believe in him, and that and that doesn't help at all to fight the epidemics. Yeah, yeah. So next is the lightning round. Feel free to answer at, you know, whatever length you want, shorter, longer, doesn't make a difference. Do you feel ready? Yeah. So what is a must-read publication for your job that you look at to stay up on what other people are doing in the area you cover? I read Amazonia Hell a lot. It's a local website that covers mostly indigenous and environmental issues. And they have a great team of writers there, Katia Brasil, Eliza Farias, and, they, and also Lucio Flavio, who is probably the best journalist in the Amazon history. He's been covering the area for over four decades, and he's still very, very important and, and crucial to understand the region. And then what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch for fun? It can be any medium, but vaguely journalistic in nature. <laughs> I'm a big fan of uh, the New York Times review of books. <laughs> um, oh, nice. Yeah, I, I, loved, I love to read all that's coming out. And I listen to the podcast every week, Pamela Paul. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's my escape journalism. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. Do you read a lot? I do. Like books? Yes, yes. I'm a big reader, yes. And then what's the best journalistic article piece, again, whatever medium, but journalistic in nature, that you've consumed recently? The book I, lo I most love in journalism is uh, from an American journalist, uh, Catherine Boo, behind the Beautiful Forevers. Uh, she's, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I just love the way she she wrote about this Mumbai Islam and in India and, and the way she was able to get intimate with the people who live there and to put the story out without, uh, like, putting her as a character and just leaving the, the story flow with so much delicacy and intimacy and still a very truthful account. That I just think it's... Uh, the piece I, I wanted to write, I mean, I, I kind of, the kind of story I, I wish I could write, this very in-depth uh, journalism exploration of people's lives. Yeah, no, it's a great book. I read it back when I was in China, so I guess probably like five years ago. But it, it is pretty amazing yeah, how dripping with detail it is and how I don't think she ever talks about herself in it at all, which is exactly. you know, qu quite a feat. Is there any particular subject matter you read into that isn't related to your job? I like Nordic crime novels. I mean, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big fan of, uh, do you know the Harry, Harry Hull series? It's a Norwegian writer, Yonesbo. Yeah, he's very famous all over the world. And so he has this uh, Harry Hull detective uh, who's a drunk even brilliant detective in, in Oslo and and also I, I read I read some a lot of um, Icelandic crime stories it's really funny because I mean they made a, a book about a crime that in Brazil was not doesn't even make a <laughs> the small section of the newspaper but anyway I, I, I like I like the way they portray the this noir society 
the Nordic societies. I, it's so different from Brazil, and and at the same time, right. and, and they convince you that it can be dangerous to live in Oslo. So it's it's really they're really uh, amazing uh, writers, uh, and it's it's, it's really escapist uh, <laughs> reading. That's cool. That's cool. That is funny that, yeah, what could be more different than living in <laughs> Manaus where it's super hot and dangerous, like living in Oslo where it's cold and, well, dangerous in their novels, but yeah. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things that journalists can do. I, I was invited to a conference in Oslo. Norway puts a lot of money in the Amazon, so I was able to go there. Uh, they invited me for a conference, and then I knocked in Joe Nesbo's uh, door and asked for an interview and <laughs> and he gave me the interview and he showed oh, up. Oh, that's great. Yeah, he showed up in the interview with with a t-shirt from Flamengo, my soccer team. <laughs> it was really... I, I couldn't enjoy more the interview than, than this one that I did with him. So that's, that's a good part about being a journalist. You can ask anything to anyone and you you can say oh it's my job <laughs> right right did you get to publish that then in like the culture section of uh, folia or something yes and the publisher here in, in brazil liked the interview and now they send the review copies <laughs> every time he publishes ah. in brazil. <laughs> so yeah so i got the, i got the books too now <laughs> that's cool and then how do you manage your work-life balance, or do you believe in it? Yeah, well, my, my son lives in Curitiba, which is very far from here. So what I do is that after a long trip, and that I have to spend a few days just writing, I go there and spend time with him and instead of coming back to Manaus. So that's how I manage. Sometimes he comes here, and that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm divorced and I'm married, so... My free time is trying to see my kid as much as I can. Sure. I mean, he's mostly grown up by now, I imagine. Yeah, he's 19 and he's in college. He's studying medicine. So it's pretty busy this day. So. That's great. Next question is, is Twitter important to you? Not really. Actually, I quit Twitter. I just didn't like the effect it causes on me. It makes me nervous, anxious, and... And actually, in the Amazon, it's not very important. I mean, the people I'm interested in with that I have to follow, they usually prefer Facebook, especially the, the indigenous. Uh, they like it better. And so I just have been away from Twitter for roughly one year now. Let's see. If you had to trade places with one journalist, living or dead, and you would have their career, who would it be? Maybe watch the Russian revolution john reed 10 days that shook the world the john reed the, the american journalist who covered the the russian revolution cool yeah i actually don't know him, but i looked it up now and it looks like it was uh very famous so i probably should i'm i'm less well read than i should be i'll admit yeah and maybe cover the russian revolution it was an interesting time to be a journalist and, <laughs> and watch that from close yeah Maybe that was the story I would like to cover. Yeah. Trade places with him, yeah. Cool. Good answer. What do you think you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist? I mean, uh, w one big decision in my life was that usually, uh, I mean, it's probably the same thing in the U.S. Usually you start 
in a smaller cities and smaller places, and then you move to the capital or to New York. And in Brazil, it's the same. First, you start in the countryside or your first jobs in the smaller cities, and then you move to the big ones. And I like to think of myself as somebody who did the opposite. <laughs> not, not so many journalists that I know of take this decision, and I think that's a professional decision that I'm proud of, that I try to understand the country from remote areas and listening to people who are many times giving an interview for the first time. I try as hard as I can to understand what they're trying to tell me and, and then tell the readers about it. Yeah, that makes sense. That's an interesting way to think about it. You're right. Yeah, most people want to end up in the Sao Paulo's, the New York's of the world, and not as many go the opposite direction. The next question is, what is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? I would go back to Campo Grande and tell my younger self, keep digging Petrobras. You will have the biggest scoop in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't be scared by the death threats. Uh, I call it that I, I'm very fond of Rubens Valente. You probably know him. He lives in Brasilia. He's from Campo Grande, and uh, he's my biggest reference in journalism in Brazil. And, and I'm lucky enough to call him a friend. And so when I got this death threat, that was 19 years ago, he said, don't be scared. It means you're in the right way. <laughs> you're in the right path. So it's a good thing to be a threat. That. It means that you're, you're doing the right job. So I, I would tell myself to dig more in Petrobras. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Piece of practical advice. Very concrete. <laughs> um, what is one thing most people don't know about you? I don't know. Well, I will tell you one little dirt secret. <laughs> uh, well, so my father has a farm, a cattle farm, and it's legal, not, no, no problems, no fines whatsoever. But still, it's a cattle farm. And I have uh, 50 cows 80 cows in my name there and so I raise cattle too <laughs> that's not something uh, environmental journalists do <laughs> right yeah yeah I mean I will say yeah my wife her family has a, a farm out in Alagreci in Rio Grande do Sul and they raise cows and, ah. and uh, rice there so it is also a bit weird that yeah, yeah they <laughs> raise cattle in some way not something to be super proud of. <laughs> no, but one thing I like this. I mean, I don't make money with that. It's just a few cattle. But uh, one thing I like to think it was that if the government, all these crazy people who go after journalists to find some dirty on, on me, he, he would probably think I would be receiving money from some crazy NGOs or from Cuba. But actually... I raise cattle. <laughs> so if somebody investigates me, it won't make any sense. So that's a nice thought that I have about this, my dirty business. Let's say that. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. That's funny. That's a good one. Let's see. What is your most embarrassing story about something that's happened while you've been working as a journalist, if anything comes to mind? Yeah, so... Going back to Honduras, I was uh, inside the embassy. It was it was a small place. There were only two or three bathrooms, 
And then I, <laughs> I, I was using the best bathroom because, you know, I was, it was my house. Sort of, so I was the only Brazilian journalist there. There were two journalists and I said, okay, that's, uh, it's Honduras, but this is the Brazilian territory. And, the, and then I was using the top bathroom. I was authorized to use it. And, I, and it was the same bathroom that Zelaya, which is um, outside the president, but she I won the 40 was using. And then one day I just had the number two and opened the door. He was waiting to get inside the bathroom. That was very embarrassing. <laughs> he had to smell what I had just did. So <laughs> from after that day, I used the, the common bathroom. I was too embarrassed to, to use this, <laughs> the same bathroom that the president was using. So <laughs> That's a funny story. And then the last question Qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? My background is in history, so I'll, I'll probably follow an academic career in social sciences. I, I started a PhD in anthropology, so yeah, probably that, that, that would be my, my plan B. Cool. Okay, so that's all the questions. I think this went great. Thanks so much for taking the time to come on the podcast and talk to me, Fabiano. Thank you for <laughs> inviting me and making me <laughs> understand some of the stories that I, I went through. No, thank you. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Fabiano Maisonavi, the Amazon correspondent for Folha de Sao Paulo, based in Manaus, Brazil. I'll post links to some of Fabiano's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page fornpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at fornpod, on Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash fornpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Mackay Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, April 11th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Correspondence.